This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Certainly there was meddling and probably there was meddling from other countries and maybe other individuals. This is part of Russian intelligence doctrine, this idea of information warfare and what they call active measures. And Moscow continues to meddle in the democratic processes of our friends and allies. This was about um, deliberately deceptive campaigns of coercive influence. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who writes his own doctor's reports, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg, and I'm in London, England with a special show today. I'm joined by the writer Anne Applebaum. She's the author most recently of Red Famine, and I'm speaking as well to a colleague of hers from the London School of Economics, Peter Pomerantsev. They are working on a project called ARENA at the London School of Economics. This is a project that came out of their interest in Russian disinformation, but has expanded to study much more generally the problem of disinformation on the Internet and social media and its threat to democracy. Anne and Peter, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Lovely to be here. I'm curious, Anne, just first, can you tell us a little more about ARENA, what it is, why you're doing it? So it's true that the original inspiration was um, my experience and Peter's experience with Russian disinformation, following it, writing it, even being subject to it. But pretty quickly, you when you look at the subject and you start to pick apart what it is, how it works, and what we're going to do about it, you have to, you realize you begin to go a little bit farther. Um, so some of our projects do actually look at how Russian disinformation works. We did a project on the German elections, which looked very specifically, for example, at how Russian trolls collaborate with alt-right trolls in order to push out the same narratives um, and support the far right in Germany. Um, but one of the conclusions from that is, well, what is the way to fight back against this? Well, one of the ways to fight back is going to be to fight back against the, against extremism in general. And so the fight against Russian disinformation in Europe may look a lot like the fight against the far right in Europe. Uh, so that's a that's just an example of, of how it works. One of the other things that you realize is that Russian disinformation works in places that are very polarized and divided because people who are who live in more polarized echo chambers. They only hear what their friends are telling them and they and they live in very alienated, they're very alienated audiences. They're more susceptible to disinformation of, of all kinds. And so then the question is, how do you reach those people? Are there projects you can do to get to them? Is there a way of putting back these kind of fragmented audiences that have been broken up by Facebook and broken up by different kinds of the, the way that modern media works and recreating some kind of public space. Um, and if that all sounds like a really big project, um, it is. <laughs> and you've been on this program several times. I always tell people you were the first person, I think, to sound the alarm about Russian interference in the 2016 election. But you come to this in part through your work as a historian of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Empire and the books you've written about that. But this also comes out of your your own experience living in Poland and getting an early glimpse of this kind of political interference and social media trolling. Can you say a little bit about about how you personally come to it? Yeah. So um, f- first of all, you know, I can I can my husband was a Polish politician and he was 
attacked during, um, you know, in, in, in the run up to an election there, not just him, but a whole group of people were attacked via tapes that were made of them and then leaked. Um, the tapes were, you know, people used swear words and stuff like that, but actually they were pretty banal. Nobody was committing crimes. And then the the way those tapes were used is they were then turned into a million different kinds of conspiracy theories and kind of attack campaigns and smear campaigns and so on. When I um, and this was, by the way, this is the same kind of politics that have have you can see the same tactic or the same um, the same thing has been has been done or tried in a number of different um, Central European East European countries. Sometimes using emails, sometimes using tapes, sometimes using um, you know other kinds of so-called secret information, which is then blown up into into huge stories. Anyway, when I when I saw in the spring of 2016 that the DNC had been hacked by by Russian hackers and that the you know material was being leaked from it, I, my first thought was, oh God, you know you're joking. You're not really going to try this in the United States, too. You know, it can't possibly work here. Um, and then, of course, it did. And it, it, it literally, the the operation it was as it was conducted in the U.S. was almost identical to everything I'd seen in five or six other countries in the past. So um, if, I, if I saw it, if it seemed familiar early, that's why. Peter, you wrote a really entertaining book, which I read because Anne told me about it, on your an experience you had at the beginning of your career working in Russian media. Was that what clued you into this issue and gave you a uh, an early glimpse of what was to come? Yes. I mean, uh, my book sort of covered sort of 2001 to 2013 in Russia, um, where I kind of tried to chart the rise of a, a new type of authoritarianism, which is very media focused, which is sort of 80% sort of media and 20% violence, as opposed to 80% violence and 20% <laughs> media, as you had under the communists. And the book actually ends with me coming back to the West and going, oh, could we see the same sort of pathologies play out here, both domestically and in terms of what? So you worked, you worked in Russian television. What was going on at the time you were there? Sure. So by the time I was in Russia, um, sort of Vladimir Putin had made it his uh, priority to take over all the different uh, TV stations, uh, whether directly or through proxies or through state companies. So sort of the first thing he did when he came to power, sort of before he took control of the security system or control of the energy system, he took control of media. And um, I suppose that the innovation that was introduced was the idea that you could own all the narratives. Yeah? And they weren't trying to push one ideology from the Kremlin, one state ideology. Uh, there was sort of like, you know, uh, there was a liberal party which was controlled by the Kremlin and a communist party and a neo-fascist party. And they're all controlled by the Kremlin. And the Kremlin was using them, using these narratives in various ways on TV in order to produce one effect, that there is no alternative to Putin. That Yes, we do have debate, but all the parties are ridiculous apart from the one great president. Um, and I think we see that a lot now as the Kremlin kind of expands outside of its borders. Uh, what's so striking is that it can work with the far right, but when we monitored the German election, and they were also working with the far left very intensely with those narratives, uh, working with financial elites, uh, and kind of had a narrative for everyone. Um, and I think that's kind of the big innovation that the Kremlin has has uh, sort of reached uh, in the way it deals with its foreign propaganda. Yeah, I think it's also the case that the, the Kremlin understood before others did the possibilities of both the internet and social media. And so this is a, remember, this is a country which had its own whole offices and, and cadres and departments dedicated to disinformation for many decades beforehand. And none of that was broken up when the Soviet Union ended. It just became Russian. And many of the 
original tactics that they used weren't really all that different or new. Um, you know, what they used to do in the olden days, they would try to convince people that, you know, the CIA invented AIDS. For example, this is a famous story they ran in the 1980s. Um, and they did it by planting that story in different places in India and Italy and Pakistan and, you know, in order to just kind of see, plant the seeds of it all over the world. But of course, it would take months and months and months for any conviction that, the, you know, to grow. Now, of course, that can all be done incredibly quickly. You just create one fake think tank and give it a fake website and then you do another one in another country and then they begin to echo one another and repeat one another and you have the sense of of a narrative. Um, uh, you know, I actually saw this. It's a very minor version of it, but I saw them do it about me. And this is one of the reasons why I got interested yeah. in it. There was a story that was about me that was written originally by a Australian journalist who lives in Moscow. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it was to do with money. And maybe I was taking money from the CIA and so on. And this, and I then saw that I watched the story as it moved around and it appeared on the, Insta the Ron Paul's website and it appeared on um, another sort of Russian business website. And then it began to appear in different places. And then it's sort of the height of this um, you know, them spreading it around in different places. It was tweeted by Julian Assange's Twitter feed. And have you developed a vocabulary around this phenomenon? I mean, when you talk about that experience, Anne, I mean, there's this sort of troll army, half bot, half human, you know, with interesting mixtures perpetuating this sort of, uh, this sort of disinformation and propaganda. I mean, part of the problem is that we don't have a vocabulary to talk about this exactly because it doesn't fit into our familiar categories of how digital media works. Well, definitely. I mean, one of the things that breaks down is is the definition between human, robot, cyborg is another one that's used for people who are half bot, half human. Uh, it also breaks down the definitions um, around attribution. Uh, it's very. I mean, we're sitting here talking about Russian campaigns. If that's easy to define, I mean, it's taken the Mueller investigation a hell of a lot of time with the massive judicial powers they have to get to the bottom of one operation during the US election. But most of the time when you're actually doing research around this, you can't actually tell where a bot or a troll is from. We say Russian, actually what we mean is sort of Russian-like mm -hmm. or kind of Russian salad. You know, we have this idea of Russian salad. So, you know, we, you know, which isn't actually made in Russia. It's just, just Russian-like. So there are attributions, we could say. There are narratives that are shared. There might be a network that's shared. Yeah, but we can't with any con conclusive kind of certainty say where an operation is coming from a lot of the time. And also it breaks down the difference between, I don't know, sort of command and control. We're used to propaganda having a, a center a media baron or an information ministry guiding it and controlling it. That's not what happens nowadays. There's a little bit of that. Obviously, there are still sort of state media channels. But a lot of the time, it's a weird mix of activists, mercenaries, people who are just doing it for money because they pile in, they see it's a market, uh, people doing it for personal grievances. And you have this sort of, uh, sort of bizarre uh, archipelago of actors and yeah, you're quite right. Our understandings of propaganda are very 20th century. You know, we still think about it in terms of two or three channels, which are, and two or three governments. And actually, it's these transnational networks of toxic speech. It is globalization. We have the global information village. It's just a bloody mess. Yeah, know? I would say it's, a, it's also one of the reasons why it's been so difficult for Western governments to grapple with it. Because, I mean, for, you know, for example, in Germany or even in the United States, the question of is this a foreign operation and therefore it's the responsibility of the Defense Department you know, or NATO to fight back against it becomes very woolly when it's Russian or pro-Russian actors working in confluence with domestic actors and domestic politicians and um, domestic political slogans to achieve some aim. You know, it, you know, is it the Defense Department's job to fight against 
you know, people creating fake Facebook pages. Well, no, not exactly. They're not really set up to do that. And you begin to get this problem, this sort of black hole of who's really responsible for fighting back because the normal, um, the normal, uh, you know, the, the, the military establishment, the defense establishment, the security establishment really weren't created to, to push back against something like this. And we're unclear on the motive, right? I mean, in the 2016 election in the U.S., were they trying to produce a result, i.e. elect Trump, or were they just trying to fuck us up? And I mean, in the global context, you know, I guess you have this question about other elections too, right? Is it are the are the is the Russian disinformation campaign designed to discredit democracy, to spread social distress of various kinds, or are they trying to get an outcome, which is how you would have thought of election interference traditionally? I mean, when the United States did it in the 1950s, it was to get somebody elected, not somebody else. We didn't want to harm the society beyond that. I think the way to think about it is a little bit the way that the Soviet Union once thought about the international proletarian revolution, right? So the theory was that someday there will be an international proletarian revolution and everybody, there will be a communist revolution in every single country and the world will be united under the the red flag. Um, I don't know whether anybody in the Soviet Union really believed this, but their foreign policy was based on it and they, they went as far as they ever could. So they you know, they pushed this idea. They, they, you know, they attempted to achieve, you know, really ridiculous things. You know, overthrow the United States, overthrow Western Europe, spread communism throughout the world, and it was maybe a ridiculous idea, and it was never going to succeed. But in the course of trying to do that, they um, they did a huge amount of damage. Um, they they spread communism across half of Europe. You know, they created distress all over the world. It, you know, this is a little bit like that. I think that. The, the idea is, let's see how far we can go. You know, OK, it would be great if we could elect a crazy person like Trump to be president of the United States. But even if we can't, let's screw up the election and make people lose their faith in democracy. And in almost every single instance where you see them acting, they have really audacious, ridiculous goals. Break up the European Union, break up NATO, get the United States troops out of Europe, American troops out of Europe. And maybe they won't ever be able to achieve those things, but they'll take what they can get. It's always how far can we push it and how far can we go? And that's that's a little bit how Soviet foreign policy thinkers also behaved. So the response has been interesting. I think in the course of a year and a half, Facebook has gone from taking the position, not our responsibility, not our problem, nothing we can do about it, to really, I think, even in the last couple of days, Mark Zuckerberg has essentially said, we are taking responsibility for it. It's going to take a really long time for us to fix it, like a decade, which is sounds pretty frustrating and not on the timetable the rest of the world is operating on. But it does represent a move on their part to acknowledging that they can't just wash their hands of this. What do you what do you think about Facebook and I guess the other platforms YouTube is discussed a lot here but but particularly Facebook in terms of how they're now responding to this problem. Hmm. Well listen well let's cut to the chase, okay? You know. Please they're, do. They're, 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 they're respond- <laughs> We're all about the chase here on <laughs> Trump. <laughs> they're they're responding but but the problems are just so to do with the infrastructure both of Facebook, of other social media companies, but also how we're reorganizing our public sphere. So I don't know, back and look, the, the, the Soviet example is, is a good one to look at. So the Soviets used to do these disinformation campaigns. Uh, there were a subset of active measures back in the Cold War. Active know. measures also includes uh, poisoning people, right? I mean, It's I, the whole thing. Yeah. Active yeah. measures, the whole kind of yeah. thing short of putting tanks into a country. But um, uh, but disinformation was... was, was uh, 
a part of it. But back then, they'd have to sort of create these hoaxes and then carefully try to put them into media, yeah, put them into newspapers uh, in the West, sort of to put them into the bloodstream. Yeah. And however awful the old media model was, and it was awful in many ways, it was still sort of based on the premise of people arguing with each other, trying to convince each other, or maybe hoodwink each other, but still kind of all crowding together in some sort of public sphere. And whether it was a disinformation campaign or an advert, you just sort of had to implant yourself into that into that media sphere. Now it's the other way around. All you know, tech companies were created as marketing tools. That's why they were invented. That's why Twitter was invented. That's kind of the way Facebook decided to go. So you have something which is a priori a marketing tool, which now media has to somehow sort of slide its way into. Which yeah, we need to market with. the news through social media. I mean, that's exactly right. But it's not about creating debate. It's about finding out people's vulnerabilities and then and then and then using them. Yeah, it's not about discourse. It's not well, about there was cer- there was certainly a moment when people thought social media was going to be great for democracy. It was around the beginning of the Arab Spring, and there was this moment of you know enthusiasm, particularly after what happened in Egypt, where people said, "Well, you know, you have these very clever protesters who understand how to use these tools." And you have these stodgy governments that don't. And, you know, that may have been a fairly brief moment, but there was a, there was a period of great enthusiasm about the role all of this could play in, in developing and promoting democracy. It's good for breaking through censorship. In that sense, yes. Uh, it gives people a platform. So in, in a, in a, the old model of censorship was broken by this, but they've come up with a new model of censorship. It's okay. Let's talk about the West. You know, those are, those are countries with a very specific political background. But, you know, so, so when the Russians today or anyone else uses social media in order to target people and to sow disinformation, uh, they're just using Facebook. They don't have to implant themselves into the system of media and sort of crawl in. They just use it. They just like, find out, oh, here's the audience, here, here's how to target them, this is what we push. So there's no difference between selling Reebok or selling Putin in that sense. Yeah, they have exactly the same mechanism behind that. So we're going to have to really relook at the whole infrastructure of, of how tech has been created, which I know is scary for America because uh, America now relies on the tech industry for its economic dynamism. But really, we need oversights, public oversight of algorithms, yeah, an ombudsman for algorithms, right? So the algorithms are changed in order to promote uh, a much more constructive public space. That means... You know, the social media companies are really giving up their holy of holies. Uh, There's a way to arrange that so that the commercial secrets aren't given out, but definitely needs public oversight. What are you trying to do at Arena? Does Arena have a sort of five-point program of how you think governments might address this? Um, We think that there are different tactics for different governments. And for example, when we wrote the Germany report, we had different recommendations for different, you know, one for the German left, one for the government, one for media. Um, And we also, you know, we also think that there's, you know, it's worth carrying out and investing in experiments to try and bring people back together. For example, we're doing one in Italy involving an Italian newspaper and trying to see whether there are ways of writing or there are ways of communicating that can reach people who normally reject um, information or who reject mainstream news. I mean, so so we think that um, there, there are places where you can make investments. There are places where, um, where you can, you know, there, there's a combination of what civil society can do, what, what governments can do, and what... Um, 
and what media can do. That, that, um, sounds, that sounds very nice. I mean, in my experience, people, if you ask people, they say they want to hear information from both sides. But, but, but in practice, they don't do that. In practice, people right. gravitate. Their confirmation bias drives them towards not only what they already agree with, but towards the more incendiary versions of it. So, you know, all of us, I mean, we're all on Twitter. I don't know if you're on Twitter, Peter, Ann and I are on Twitter. And, you know, when you when you attack somebody on Twitter, you get a lot of you get a lot of pickup. People people respond. And when you say something nice of us, I mean, nobody nobody sees it. I mean, it seems to be human nature is reflected on these social platforms is both antagonistic and polarized. Well, that's why, you know, your question, what we were talking about a second ago is, you know, is there a way to regulate the platforms? Is there a way to do public oversight of the platforms? Can we start talking about the algorithms that encourage um, division and anger? Um, You know, it becomes pretty, as I said, pretty, pretty quickly when you start talking about Russian information, pretty quickly you begin talking about the nature of social media and shouldn't there, you know, don't we need to think harder about how it's working, what it's doing. But isn't another argument that it should just be smaller and less powerful? I mean, this, you know, Facebook's mission has been to connect the whole world. And, you know, the kinds of solutions you're talking about have to do with, yes, that's happening. How do we how do we regulate the algorithm? How do we regulate how they're doing that? Another answer is to say, no, let's not connect the whole world. Yeah. Let's you know. Let's let's have let's have more. Laws. Let's let's have more competition among a larger number of social networks, and there would be a big disadvantage to that. If people get on Facebook, the reason a lot of people feel compelled to be on Facebook is because everybody else is on Facebook. You know, and you could have a much more fragmented social media landscape, which could be, I suppose, worse or better because if it's more fragmented, in some ways, it becomes even less visible. Well, we're already seeing that. So the far right have moved off the main platforms. Uh, and they've so been the kicked US, off in large yeah, part. Yeah, actually, I mean, they're still there, to be honest. But but it's much less visible. Uh, I, I've been following quite a bunch of far right far right accounts on Twitter, and it's been very frustrating. They've been taken off. Um, but now they're all on Gab, which is an alternative social media network. A lot what is it? Gab. Gab. AI. Yeah. Uh, where where, is it? where free speech is still possible because it advertises itself. Um, a lot of them are on the Discord channel. Also, a lot of the far right have moved on to Russian social media platforms. So VK is now home to, which VK is the Russian version of Facebook. That's home to the German far right, bit to the Swedish far right, and bit to the American far right. So you're right. This we, we are over obsessing with Facebook in a way at the moment, uh, and we really have to look at the whole the whole model. It'll it, it's it's look. I mean, people could have been looking for this one solution. I mean, when media comes, when a new media comes along, it transforms everything. I mean, the printing press transformed everything. Radio transformed everything. It'll mean probably changing the way we do the whole bits of our politics and society. So it's going to be a very kind of full spectrum response that's needed. I mean, think about the BBC, which we all take for granted. That was created as a response to new media technology in the 20th century. It didn't exist. It was like, okay, my God, there's this new thing called radio, then TV. How on Mm. earth do we keep up with this and use this for something positive rather than just Hitler and Stalin. Yeah. And the BBC is a great example because in many ways, it's um, there's not a very good case for it in theory. There's a wonderful case for it in practice, mm-hmm. right? I mean, in, in theory, the idea that you're going to have state-funded media raises all kinds of problems. Yeah, all and, the and, issues and, and, it, that, and it works disastrously badly in a lot of places. Well, yes. Yeah. But it has been for generations the, the most reliable global source of information and still has this very high standard of professionalism and ethics, whatever. I mean, everyone has 
people in many ways criticize the, the, the best media the most. New York Times is more criticized than any newspaper because it matters the most, because it's, it's, the, it's the most important in the American context. But, I mean, my, my point is just that the solutions that you work out in theory may not, may not be the ones that end up being effective in responding to the problem we're experiencing. Well, listen, the BBC is interesting because it's one of the few media that get up in the morning and say, oh, my God, how do we reach the bits of the country that don't like us? Yeah, Instead of polarizing, how do we unite? And that also comes with a lot of problems. I mean, sometimes a lot of their news programming does become, on the one hand, on the other hand, sort of false equivalencies. Super judicious. And yeah. they're getting that criticism no, 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 about no. Brexit. They, yeah. No, no, no. They, well, yes, exactly. And the far right generally. Um, but And that's sort of the drawback. But still... I don't think many media in the world get up with that thought. Most mm. media get up in the world thinking exactly what you said. How do I polarize as much as I can? How do I either raise people behind the Trump banner or get people to attract Trump all day? And that's how I'm going to get my clicks. And that's my financial model. The New York Times is amazing. I read it every morning, but I, I'm, I'm unsure of its culture pages or lifestyle pages relevance to the vast majority of Americans. So clearly not it's also thinking about a market it needs to sell to and a sort of a lifestyle that is sort of purveying through its treatments of news. Certainly that approach, a media that gets up in the morning and tries to reach people who don't want to read it uh, and tries to bring them into a debate is something we need a lot more of. I'm not sure it's going to be public media as we knew it before. It might be some sort of new role for civil society. Civil society is something we talk about a lot, but I wonder whether what is digital civil society? We haven't really thought that through. At the moment, I mean, independent journalism is civil society. In many ways, it's the core of civil society, but it's being undermined in business and economic terms by social media. So, you know, there's your problem. I mean, if you had, if you had robust independent media everywhere in the world, this would not be the problem it is. Well, there's two things. A, but the way that it always formulated itself is that it was challenging, you know, it was the people's representative challenging government. That was the core mission of it. That was the idea of the fourth estate. Now it also has a horizontal mission, not just a kind of top-down mission uh, of kind of how do you bring together fractured communities. I mean, how would one reinvent the local town newspaper so that it brought together sort of a, t a purple a purple town. Um, but yes, you're quite right. Where would the money come from? I mean, I think that sort of work is really as important as nurses and soldiers and things like that. I think it has to be probably publicly funded in some way or find innovative ways of publicly funded it. There, there is a, in, in Germany, um, there have been a, a couple of people have argued that Facebook should fund independent media. I mean, if Facebook is destroying media, then it should create, you know, it should it should be returning some of its profits into by reinvesting it in media. I mean, you can see all kinds of problems with that, but it's certainly an idea that's been percolating around Europe. Yeah, and in the U.S. too, and they're starting to fund some in independent media, they're, uh, uh, local media. They're just, they're very late to the game. I mean, there's there's not much local media left in America's yeah. cities outside the big the big coastal cities. And uh, I, I, I worry that, I mean, if they'd taken this on five years ago, it might have had some meaning. But as a listener, as a last question for, for both of you, we're we're coming up on another election in the United States, the midterm election in, in November. What do you think the prospect is for both 
for the kind of uh, interference, particularly Russian interference, we saw in 2016. But also, what does how does the how much have we fixed the the social media uh, landscape? Do we think are we going to have a problem in 2018 in congressional and Senate elections? That's an echo of 2016, or have we kind of are we on it now? So there's two kinds of problems. I mean, one is the hardware problem, which is the hacking of elections. A number of people who have raised the, you know, have been working on raising awareness among, you know, local guys who run election services in Arizona and Texas and Oklahoma. Um, and there was a protecting was, the actual vote. Pr- this the is vote protecting the actual yeah. vote, but this is this is not a minor problem because casting doubt on the validity of the vote, even just by doing something that raises that possibility, is another way to undermine democracy and undermine the validity of the result. So, again, it's this Russian thing. And even if you don't succeed in swaying the election or in changing the vote, simply the fact of having seen, been seen to interfere in it is something that is something that you could then later use. I mean, this actually may have been plan B in the 2016 election was, you know, for the for had Trump not won and Hillary had won, then you may have seen a huge number of stories about was the election messed with? Was it hacked? And you could even hear in some of Trump's rhetoric towards the end of the election, the, this idea that the election is rigged, you know, the system is rigged. He was saying all that on the assumption he was going to lose. He, he was, was saying that on the assumption he was losing. And then the idea was that after the election, they were going to... Um, you know, they would then use some evidence that there had been hacking of ele- of, of electoral um, electoral commissions to 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 make that point. Um, and I think there has been some raising of the awareness. I, I and this was actually Facebook and some other tech companies funded recently a simulation exercise where they brought together electoral officials from all over the country and they ran a simulation, a kind of game. You know, here your election is being hacked, and they had to, people had to deal with one scenario like a war after another, game, yeah. like a war game. And somebody who was there described it to me and he said it was you know you he had a beer with somebody some of the some of the participants afterwards and you know these are like 19 year olds who have you know you know this is their first job running an electoral commission in Arizona and you know when they suddenly realize they're faced with you know the Russian state and its massive cyber war uh, apparatus they they kind of freak out so i think one thing just building some um there is has been an effort to build some confidence around around those people um as for the social media hacking other than raising awareness or social media manipulation rather other than raising raising awareness i I don't feel that that much has been done. I don't feel that people yet still really understand how how this works, and I don't think there's been a lot of thought about what to do about it. Peter, how about 2018? Will the will the Russians are the Russians going to try to interfere as much? So it's not just the U.S. We're looking at forward to a cycle of elections across the world. Um, uh, there's Mexico coming up, India, Sweden, um, and then Ukraine. So there's a whole bunch of them coming up. Largely, we see a kind of evolution of the Russian and others' approach. So, you know, 2016 was all hacking. You know, 2017 was bots. I mean, hacking and bots are a little bit a little bit old school now. Everybody's researchers focuses very much on closed Facebook groups. So there's these plethoras of closed groups on social media, which we simply can't see, you know, because of Facebook's various privacy laws. We have no idea what's going on in them. So a lot of researchers are thinking about that. How do we get our eyes across that? And how do we... Uh, mitigates the spread of disinformation campaigns. So that's really where the focus is at the moment. But, you know, this this is a kind of a field where which which re, reinvents itself every, uh, you know, every season. It's like, you know, you have a new collection. But going back to the Cold War, we shouldn't forget about 
these kind of soft democracies across the world. I mean, maybe America is now a weak democracy as well. But we kind of slightly over-focus on, on Britain and America, simply because that's where our conversation is. But really, I think I would be looking much harder at, at, at sort of, you know, um, what used to be known as the non-aligned countries, you know, uh, places in Latin America and Southeast Asia, something very weird developments happening in the Philippines. So this is a global thing. It's not just, uh, we, we tend to get very narcissistic. I actually think the one great problem with the discourse in, in the US, actually there are many, but one <laughs> is this bizarre narcissism as if this is a new thing. This has been going on in various forms and through various media Really, well, obviously, Nicola never stopped in the 1990s if you were in Moldova or in the Baltics or in Georgia. And, like, the idea that everybody's just sort of woken up that Russia does sort of, like, uh, subversive information campaigns if it's a new thing. The Balts have been screaming about this for 20 years but were dismissed by the Western powers as, um, you know, paranoid fools. Now uh, their kind of calmness in the face of these challenges and their kind of wisdom in not overreacting at times is something that America could learn from. It's a disease we didn't think we could get and it's spread across the Atlantic. The one real problem is that the real answer to Russian disinformation is a strong and powerful counter-narrative. So we, the democracies, are united and we will push back against this and we are going to stand up for our values, which are, you know, objectivity in the media, neutrality of the civil service, um, you know, unity in 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 our attitudes to the world. And of course, this is the one thing that Trump prevents us from having because Trump is just not able to lead that kind of counter narrative. He can't run it. He doesn't believe it. He he is the opposite of it. Um, and the real, it's almost like there's a, you know, that's the obvious and real solution is to rebuild a conversation about what is the West, what is the United States, what is democracy. And he is, you know, he torpedoes it. I've been speaking to Anne Applebaum and Peter Pomerantsov. Arena is their project at the London School of Economics. Peter and Anne, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thanks. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But wait, we're not done. Earlier this week, Dr. Ronnie Jackson withdrew from consideration for Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Now, that had a lot to do with the issues surrounding his conduct as White House physician. But somehow, a lot of that conduct was just missed. Maybe it had something to do with the vetting process. Okay, Diane, we have a huge job this morning. Yes, we, we do. We have to vet the nominee for the VA, Ronnie 
Jackson. Ronnie Jackson. Can I just lead by saying he does not look like a Ronnie Jackson? He doesn't. If I had to pick a name for him, it would not be that name. No. But that's just me. Okay. Well, he seems like a nice guy. We've got stacks of stuff to go through. And, you know, we only have until the end of today to do right, this. So right. let's okay. get going and vet this nominee. Do you Make mind, sure. before yes. we get started, yes. if we just decide what we're going to get for lunch? Oh, my God. You're speaking my language. I did not have breakfast this morning. I, I was had, running and gunning. I had a banana with peanut butter. And somebody told me that that fills you. They're wrong. I feel hungrier than if I didn't have anything. Let's decide. I didn't have anything. So I'm thinking if we could just at least decide now, then we can place the, the order. Way. Right? Yep. And, and then, then not think about it. Ronnie we can Jackson. have a working lunch. Three minutes later. What are you feeling like for lunch? What about two rolls and some edamame? Yeah. Are you going to want edamame too? I always get edamame, but I, I don't always eat all of it. Yeah. But I feel like I feel like it's it's kind of like getting the soy sauce. What about this burger place that's right downstairs? Oh, I haven't tried it. Yeah. I haven't but tried I, would it. Would they do, t- is, I mean, like we can't, we can't order there. Why not? I don't know. It It doesn't look like a takeout place. Well, no. I think that all we have to do is, let me just Google them. Let me just Google. Five minutes later. They use Breezebop to do their deliveries. So do you have the Breezebop app? I don't. I I don't have Breezebop. I I don't want to download another app. Let's just do sushi. But they don't do the And then we'll dive into this Ronnie Jackson stuff. Okay. Ten minutes later. You know what? Now that this is ordered, let's dive into this Ronnie Jackson stuff. What is this this post-it note? I have a post-it note on this manila folder that says quote-unquote candy man what does that mean i, it's, that's, I don't I think know. that's my handwriting candy man yeah you know what that makes me think though dessert 45 minutes later oh that was good sushi oh my god i am full um okay so we need to vet this nominee because Ugh. he is going to be the head of veterans affairs for the whole country holy shit have you seen wild wild country yes what 30 minutes later Okay, we should get into this Ronnie Jackson we stuff. Need to we focus. should. I'm. I haven't even opened this folder. We are the two people who are supposed to vet this guy, head of Veterans Affairs. Um, oh. Why do I have a note here that says "Look into vehicle incident"? Vehicle incident. Do you know how to turn a car seat from back to front? No. That's where we're at in, in our house right now. Speaking of vehicle Take it incidents, to the fire station. I always feel bad doing that, though. No, those guys are supposedly trained. To do it, and they know how to do it. Twenty minutes later. Okay, we should dive into this Ronnie Jackson. We should stuff. dive in. Somebody but needs are to you vet thinking him. what I'm thinking? I'm let's thinking, grab a coffee. Let's get a coffee because, because this is not going to end soon. My and eyelids I am, are just I know, I know. because I was up until two watching Wild Wild Country. Twenty five minutes later. Okay, Ronnie, Ronnie Jackson, Ronald, the nominee R. To Jackson, Ronald R. What's his middle? I don't know. I don't know. Name. Did you know? We should R. start there. We should. What start is his there. middle name? Wait, is it is it really three forty five? Uh-huh. My God. Oh, <gasps> I gotta move my car. We have that thing at four. But I gotta move my car. Oh God. My thing. My meter ended at three thirty. Can I just throw something out? Yeah. This guy looks very nice. He seems very cool. I was gonna say, what could be Why? the problem? He's been the doctor for like the last like thousand, thousand presidents. presidents. Right. Let's just sign off on this. Sounds good to me. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Let us know by tweeting us at RealTrumpCast. And please follow us while you're at it. Our handle is the best way to stay in touch and keep up with the show. That sketch was improvised in our Brooklyn studio by Steve Waltine, Kate James, 
with special thanks to Emily Mulholland. And special thanks to Ryan Dilley in London for his help in the studio. Trumpcast is, of course, produced by Jason DeLeon in New York. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.